Reverend. You can have any truth you want. Walk, talk, address a duke, a lord, a bishop, an ambassador. It's absolutely impossible. of the Projections Podcast. We are Sarah, Catherine Cleaver and Mary Wilde and we like to use psychoanalysis to talk about film and film to talk about life. We're back with a series of episodes exploring fashion films. We'll be running through themes including controlling creation, desiring desire, violence and bodies, consuming and corruption, fetish, reading clothes and disguise and secrets as well as anything else that happens to come up during our sessions. We're especially fascinated by the relationship between fashion and death, and we've chosen films that represent this intriguing dynamic. Join us for an in-depth investigation of fashion films. Bye! Hi Sarah. Hi Mary, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, So, welcome to our second series. We are going to be talking about the fashion film. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and representations of fashion in cinema mm-hmm. and the way that fashion works as, a t- in a sense, a type of language. Yeah. And I suppose all of the kind of philosophical, psychological things that are absolutely. wrapped up with fashion. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the our ideas behind the series and what kind of led, it, led us to it? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, we, we both of us, uh, I feel co- confident saying, we're very interested in good-looking cinema, mm-hmm. um, films that are aesthetically pleasing, and um, the fashion influence on film is something that I personally find very interesting. I suppose how um, something looks, you know, something might look more beautiful because of the emphasis on a, the certain a certain influence that a fashion designer or a visionary in the fashion world might have had on the production of the film. And now I'm thinking of Givenchy, for example, um, in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, but I think more widely, it's very interesting just to kind of, particularly this year, having seen Phantom Thread, mm. uh, seeing these kinds of narratives develop um, about the work of being in the fashion work world and mm, I suppose how that is a very interesting cinematic experience mm. as well. Yeah, I think I've always, I've, I've for a little while, I've been co- kind of collecting films that are almost pretty much horror films about the fashion industry <laughs> and wondering why the world of film is so suspicious of the world of fashion ah. and why we in, we, in general, the whole world is so suspicious of the world of fashion. There's something, there's just so many negative yeah. connotations around fashion and there is this, there is this obvious link with fashion and death. But mm-hmm. I'd like to explore a little bit oh, deeper yeah. what that it's is. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's um, that, yeah, that's probably our starting point. I mean, that led us to, um, I suppose, want to dive further into this discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that you speak of the suspicion of the, you know towards the fashion world. Uh, I, I was so amused this year when uh, Vogue magazine, their Twitter account put out this tweet 
that um, I think they published an article in their magazine saying that it hasn't actually been a very good year for horror cinema this year. Uh, and that tweet got a lot of passionate oh, that responses. Is interesting. Yeah, like really strong responses against that. So, you know, just someone making, I think, a very weak argument that it ha it's just been a bad year for horror cinema. But who on earth at Vogue has the... Exactly, like, the, authority. the authority. I mean, you know, you don't have to have the authority to to well, express an opinion about film, but in a professional context, you do. I know. But that is very, that is so interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what was really amusing was not just the very passionate response towards that, but then Fangoria uh, retweeted the, the Vogue uh, statement mm -hmm. with a caption saying, it's been a very bad year for, for fashion. This <laughs> <laughs> was a great, which was a very amusing response. And then that went viral. It, it, yeah, I, it brings me back to what you just said about this kind of mutual unease. Or mm -hmm. I don't know if, if it's like, is the fashion world embracing of the dynamics in the horror in the horror world because I feel like on on some level they they do it unconsciously. But yeah, of course there is this there is this incredible unconscious conversation yeah. between fashion and horror, yeah. and uh, you can see it in the work of certain designers. Yeah. You can see it in the work of Ray Kawakubo. Yeah, you can see it. I mean, didn't um, Raph Simmons have a show where all of the models looked like they dripped blood? Oh yeah, uh, was it a Calvin Klein show? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, and of course, fashion photographers, uh, it's something that's clearly, they're always interested in an arresting image. Yeah. And, you know, horror cinema has those. Absolutely. Those incredible arresting images, and images of violence are the ones images that, of violence. that capture the eye. Yeah, and they're the ones that make headlines. Like, mm. I'm now thinking, when I saw the McQueen documentary this year, there was a whole segment in that that touched on the controversy that arose in the media following Alexander McQueen's decision to uh, have his catwalk models appear like they'd just been attacked. Mm -hmm. I think it was the Highland Ray. Right. Yeah, and I, that was such an interesting story behind how he arrived at that um, vision mm -hmm. for the show. But it was the really it was the reaction to that that really interested me. You know how. People accuse them of misogyny, of um, glorifying violence. Lars von Trier situation. Absolutely. That Alex <laughs> McQueen and Lars von Trier can be comparable. Oh yeah. And in this first episode, we're kind of going to be we're going to be talking about control and creation. Yeah. And we are sort of starting by looking at a comparison between the auteur and the fashion professional, whether that's the designer or the photographer or mm -hmm. whoever. Um, and I think there are, yeah, definitely, I would call Alexander McQueen the last one true of fashion. Yeah. And it's that same problem of, yeah. it's, you know, does showing violence against women mean that you have violent feelings towards women? Of course yeah. it doesn't. No, but exactly. Does the, does the simple depiction mm. of violence mean that you endorse it? And that's, I think that's outrageous. Mm. I think absolutely you cannot make that equivalence. And when people start to make those things the same, we're now, I believe, in a very dangerous territory, uh, kind of like Orwellian mm -hmm. space, where merely thinking about certain things will become, you know, uh, sanctionable, like um, dog crime. Mm -hmm. So I just, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very wary of things like that. 
And I really like that you say that uh, there's a link between the two. I love them both equally. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that there is a general... There is this this connection between film and fashion. There always has been. Yeah. Since the, you know, since the film was, was invented. Mm. But I also often think that's an uneasy connection and can often be got, got wrong yeah. as well. You know, it's... The film world thinks that fashion is merely a tool, or if the fashion world thinks that film is merely a tool, oh, it wow. can result in some really empty pieces of work. Yeah. <laughs> um, and these are, I think, a lot of the films that we've chosen. We've tried to choose films that have something to do with the fashion industry, mm-hmm. whether it's uh, someone involved in the fashion industry has worked on that film, or whether it's directly a film about the fashion industry. But a lot, a lot of these are not all accidental films about fashion or accidental analogies about the same things that fashion, fashion is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so without further ado, should we get into our first two? Let's get into it. Yeah. So I suppose the episode is generally, I mean, we'll probably, I think we're kind of still figuring it out, mm-hmm. but the episode is generally kind of, is about power and control, I suppose, and who has yeah. it. Exactly. And in a way, that's the logical place to start mm. would be maybe around the myth of Pygmalion. Yes. Okay, so the two films that we're talking about today are My Fair Lady. Yeah. Uh, what year? In 1964. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a music, American musical film, um, and it's based on the 1913 stage play Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. Mm-hmm. Um, it's directed by George Cukor. And yeah, it stars the amazing Audrey Hepburn as Eliza Doolittle and, and the equally amazing Rex Harrison. And the equally amazing Rex Harrison, yeah, my, as Henry Higgins. My crush as a child. <laughs> um, and then later we're also going to be talking about Blow Up, but we'll give, yeah. we'll give the synopsis to that afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, it might surprise you to learn that the first time I ever saw this film, My Fair Lady, was in pre- preparation for this podcast. No way. It's true. Oh my goodness. Yeah. What did you think? Did you have a good time? I loved time? it. I loved it. <laughs> I had an instinct that it would be a good one to choose when we were like deciding on titles. Yeah, it is a, such a good one to choose. Yeah. It's an incredibly good one to choose. And I think that I... It's one of those films that I loved as a child so much. And I think that I put it to one side along with Childish Things as the whatever the poem is. And... <laughs> I shouldn't have because it's genius. Yeah. It's a really, really good film. Yeah. It's near perfect. It is actually, it is a perfect film. Yeah. If you're not a musicals fan, maybe it's not a perfect film, but it's... But the thing is, I'm not a musicals fan. And you still loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I couldn't believe how much uh, I related to nearly every every scene. Mm. I thought it was so intelligent. It was funny. Um... And it really stands the test of time. Like, the humor is so apl- applicable now, mm. you know? Um, and I, I was sort of taken aback by that because I really do have an aversion to the musical genre. That's interesting. And I love this. For anyone out there listening, if you cannot stand musicals, take it from me. I can't stand them, and I love this. The music in this one is very, very good as well. It's very good. Like, I, 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 mean, I am a big musicals fan. Yeah. I grew up pretty much I was at my grandparents house five days a week because both my parents worked and they really liked musicals so I I grew up as like a tiny old person so I liked watching like (laughs) videotape recordings of the ballet and musicals and my granddad had all of the soundtracks to musicals to play in his car on the way to school 
So it was really drummed into me. Fabulous. But I, and I love them. Absolutely adore them. I'm actually going to see West Side Story on Boxing Day at the Prince Charles. Fabulous. Yeah. Amazing. And I was listening to the soundtrack on the way here. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to the soundtrack for this on Spotify. Uh, I have been as well. The, my fa- oh. What's your favourite song? I could have danced all night. Is that your favourite? Yeah. My favourite is Show Me. Oh, yeah. It's such a sassy, good... It's very sassy. It's, she's got so... I mean, she's got so much power all the way through the film, which we'll talk about. Yeah. But I really... I just love that. That. Yeah. Just... It's such a, I think it's considering that they're all in like Edwardian sort of period costume. It's it's so sexy. Very. She's so sexy. It's very between, suggestive. Like, yeah, the, between them, the like that the sort of relationship between. Them. I was also in love with Freddie when I was a child, and now I can see that he's a bit of a sap. But <laughs> I, it was, to me, he was just like this this man is like good looking man in the top hat, and I was like completely Aww. completely in love. Yeah, and the scene where they go to Ascot is probably, I've never laughed that much in my life. I feel like watching a, a musical before, it, it was so funny. The whole thing about the new small talk mm. and uh, just brilliant. Yeah. And she looks amazing. Oh my God. Well, we have to get onto that scene We're at gonna some get point onto because it. that Absolutely. is an incredible, that is just as a set piece, that, inc- that entire thing is in- insane. And it inspired numerous rip-offs. Um, do you think it's a bit clockwork orange? <laughs> oh my god, I hadn't thought of that at all. Tell me why. Just the the way that they're all that it's all black and white. Yeah. They're all none of them are moving. They're all standing still and they have this this sort of this like a kind of antisocial yeah. like you know inability to smile. I think it's so clockwork orange. I think so the look true. of it now is so that. similar. That scene, that scene where yeah. they're zooming in on them drinking milk, and, yeah. oh my and God. everyone's everyone's very still. Everyone's very posed. It would make sense because it's Warner Brothers, so right. it's the same. It's the same, um, you know, studio that produced Clockwork Orange, and um, I can imagine there have been, you know, there might have been some professionals that crossed over, possibly. Uh, or just Kubrick saw it and thought it was good. I, I can see Kubrick liking this. I can see Kubrick liking Absolutely. it Absolutely. Now you've said that. Oh my God, it makes me want to watch it again. <laughs> New dimensions. I love it. And also uh, Capote's Black and White Ball was ah, based on yeah. that. Right. Yeah. Which I guess was the same year. Yeah. Amazing. Must have been. Um, Amazing. So should we tell our listeners the story of Pygmalion? Yes. Yes, absolutely. So Pygmalion, he was a king of Cyprus who fashioned an ivory statue of a beautiful woman and he loved it so deeply that in answer to his prayer, Aphrodite gave it life. Um, And then the woman, the statue who then became a woman, um, she was called Galatea. Mm -hmm. She then bore him a daughter. Um, So... Effectively, he was. He, he, how would you characterize that char- that that mythological figure, Pygmalion? I th- I read him as someone who was very disillusioned, maybe with reality. Mm-hmm. So he just fixated on his fantasy woman, his ideal his ideal woman. Um, he had such little patience for uh, just ordinary human life. Yeah, yeah. He, ordinary human relationships, and the, in a way that kind of like. Yeah, maybe sometimes a drudgery of life, the banality of, of that. You and know. he was an artist. And he was an artist, mm. exactly. Um, but he had a wild imagination, and in a way, he was seeking out something ideal. 
But there's no moral of that story, is there? It doesn't mm. go wrong. There's no. no... What's the film where the kids make a woman? Is it Weird Science? Yeah, Weird Science. Yeah, yeah there's no... There's, <laughs> there, there are consequences for them. But there's no consequences no. of this man making his ideal woman. No. And there's, I think that, that actually that idea has been explored a lot in literature and film. There's also that mm. film... What's that one? Ruby Sparks. Oh, yeah. Where he makes his sort of manic pixie dream girl. That's right. And then doesn't love her because she's exactly what he wants. Yeah. Mm. Zizek would say that his symptom is that he got his wish. Like, he got his desire. Desire realized is a nightmare. Exactly. Desire realized is a nightmare. Zizek. (laughs) You're right. There's no moral for Pygmalion. He gets exactly what he wants. But but it's like he doesn't... uh, There's no nightmare scenario for him. Um, And there's no kind of downside there's no no downside at all and so yeah so this the the musical which is based on the play by George Bernard Shaw it's sort of exploring this thing about um this depiction of a poor cockney flower seller Eliza Doolittle um who overhears um this phonetics professor who's sort of a very arrogant man Mm. um Henry Higgins um and, and he initially they get to know each other because he he wagers that he could teach her to speak proper English, um, and thereby making her presentable to high society. So that's the whole premise of the of the film. Mm. Um, and I was taken aback. I was when I you know having seen it for the first time in preparation for our talk today. I this, this is not what I expected. I couldn't believe how Audrey Hepburn, her performance initially, before her conditioning phase, Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, like her performance was so raw. I wasn't expecting that because I'm so used to always seeing her being very poised. Yeah, no, she is, she is incredibly, yeah, raw is definitely the word. Yeah. She's so vulnerable and so just offended by him at every turn and it's really upsetting. It is, I think, I think this is one of those films that is now difficult to show because of the accusations of misogyny. Again, that's really silly. I think so. Um, but I he does, he does some terrible things to her. He does some oh, yeah. awful things. Absolutely. And he's unapologetically mm. um, rude yeah. and uh, dismissive of her. Um, he mocks her. He, you know, of course, like he, we can see that he has a very... Uh, negative view of women. Mm. We later he just... has sings a song about how he has a yeah. well sings is a step too far. He kind of speaks <laughs> all of his songs about how he doesn't have women in his life. That's Which, right. I don't know when you watch it now and you see him living in this house with Colonel Pickering and talking about how he doesn't have any relationships with women. Do you not just think they're just coded as gay? I know exactly. Like it's, it's actually. So true. I just that's that. As an adult, I'm just like, oh, of course he's, he doesn't have any interest in women because he's in love with this lovely Colonel yeah. Pickering, who is also a misogynist in his own. Yeah. They but they've got like their different styles of misogyny, yeah. haven't they? They're like hard misogyny and their soft misogyny. <laughs> absolutely. When I was watching it, I was again absolutely taken aback, really shocked to my core, seeing Audrey Hepburn screeching like yeah. that you know, wailing from her gut, mm-hmm. screaming. The scene when she, they, they, they force her upstairs, like the, the, the ladies of the manor, they, they take her up. That's really harrowing to watch it that is. as an adult. 
um, I think that I wrote down that it looks, it feels like a rape scene. Yeah. And it's a really interesting. I think those servants are some of the most interesting characters in the film. Yeah. Because they're there as they're there as sort of stand-ins for the the banality of evil. I think mm. of the sort of of the the workers that keep the tyrant in his position. Yeah. And they do it to, they do it, they hurt themselves doing it. Yeah. But they're so, but she's, and she is, especially the housekeeper is especially a version of that because she should be, she should be looking out for another woman. Yeah. And she doesn't. No. She's a misogynist as well. Yeah. Because, and she's I a think, facilitator. Yeah, she is. And they all are. And they all this, are. They're all complicit. They're all completely complicit. And there's a scene where they're singing about, Poor Professor Higgins. Oh, yeah. Who is slaving all day. Worrying about him. They're worrying about him. Working and, too late into the early hours. Yeah. And while Eliza's like, falling apart with, with exhaustion, but also while they're cleaning and cooking and organising tidy and slaving yeah. over him, while everyone is, and he's doing absolutely nothing. And it's this, this idea of this genius that needs to be... that needs special treatment yeah. and needs everyone else to flock around them yeah. and it it reminded me of the fashion the way that we see certain people in the fashion industry the kind of the stories about certain people in the fashion industry how they need to be treated so with, know, kid with gloves. Kid gloves and yeah. also just about any sort of high value high production creative output yeah film included where one person's vision it equals the slaving away of hundreds of other people. And that can be a benevolent thing, but it can also be a terrible thing. Yeah. It's such a great analogy for any of those, any of those types of work that you'll yeah. have people hurting themselves to get yeah. your work done, to get your, your vision yeah. completed. Yeah. It's like that film. Um, did you see the documentary about uh, Leon Vitali, yes. film worker? It's a bit like that. Yeah. I mean, I say that with much affection for Kubrick. I absolutely adore Stanley Kubrick. But he was one of these auteurs mm. who commanded a certain atmosphere on his sets where every waking moment was dedicated to his vision, mm. to delivering his vision. Um, now, as a fan of his work, you know, absolutely. I'm like, I'm... I'm worth it. Yeah, yeah, worth it. The pain was worth it because look at what we Well, Leon got. Vitelli thinks that too. Leon Vitelli thinks that. Mm. And I think that for people who, you know, in retrospect now, look back on how Kubrick worked and, and maybe condemn him or judge him in, in a negative way, I think maybe they're denying Leon Vitelli's agency. Yeah, Because he, it was his decision and he says, this is my... I wanted to contribute to the history of cinema and I did. Mm. Um... But yeah, I, I, that scene, poor Professor Higgins, I mean, it's such an ironic, <laughs> so ironic, because there's a line where they think, they say something like, he doesn't eat or drink, yeah. and he's there, like, sipping nice tea and having a little snack, so <laughs> of course he's looking after himself, he's fine, mm. but she's the one who's being stripped down, literally, Yeah, you know, like, they're... they're it's, it's, you're right, like, I watched that scene when they're forcing her to bathe, and they're stripping away her clothes, you know, these old clothes that represent exactly the persona that is trying to be bleached out, the mm. persona they're trying to, 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 to gentrify, you know? And so they're removing evidence of who she, she, who she is mm. currently to be replaced by something else. And it's painful. 
And Hepburn's performance, I mean, it's magnificent. She's so raw. She's mm. so angry. But I really like how loud she is. Yeah, me too. Because I think these two films that we've chosen, Blow Up and My Fair mm-hmm. Lady, there is uh, there's this whole story that the visuals tell, and there's this whole other story that the sound design tells. Either the sound design or... The, well, yeah, no, yeah, the sound design. absolutely. Actually. And um, with Blow Up, it's sound is is much more subtle and we'll get to it but sound is definitely sound definitely says something about the, the characters losing control of their sort of their situations but eliza has yeah. so there's so much sound emanating from her the entire film that and i really think that there is something to be said about women and voices yeah in fashion and in film especially film of that time because the silent era was still wasn't that long ago yeah there's still this this thing in hollywood mm. where women suddenly had to be accompanied by their voices and it was very difficult for audiences to you know to to go from just looking at an image of a perfect woman to ha- having to hear her voice wow that's such a good point and you know there are loads of cla- like classical hollywood films about that you know, yeah. singing in the rain for example yeah. and the fact that and she is her voice cuts through the scenes it's so shrill and so loud yeah. and there are lots of other ways in which voices sort of cut through scenes like his his uh recording devices oh, yeah. that he keeps turning with the vowels with yeah. the vowels mm. and i really there is i don't know exactly what it is but there is something that she never loses and there is something about models as well you know like they're they're so they're so perfect because mm. you don't hear them speak i mean people have said a lot about kate moss's voice and how it doesn't really match her face and how it's really a disappointment and she's more you know and she even she says never complain never explain or whatever yeah. it is yeah know, there is she's adopted this garbo-esque persona exactly because she's aware yeah. of that criticism because there's her. that criticism level especially at women images of women yeah but also and and those you know those images they're unattainable and they're beautiful but they also don't have any power and you That's can right. project on them what you want but you can't project onto eliza no because and she doesn't work the same way as as what he thinks how he thinks a woman works. There's that song at the beginning when they're all singing about what they want and they're all singing about their sort of aspirational desires and she essentially just wants a room of one's own. She's yeah. like a, she's a feminist. Yeah. And the suffragettes literally march through that film. Yeah, that's well. right. There's a bit. There's a scene where it's like a, a singing right. scene, a musical <laughs> scene, and they they march right through yeah. it. Yeah. And there is, there is, I think it's a really feminist film. She's a really feminist oh, yeah. character. And when he says, he says something about, he says, he gives her chocolates and she does want chocolate. And then he says, um, you know, you can get married. And she's like, oh, who'd marry me? And he said, he says, the streets will be strewn with the bodies of men shooting themselves for your favour. And she's absolutely horrified. Yeah. The, she doesn't want a man. She doesn't want no. love. She doesn't want anything like that no she's and i i I find that a really interesting thing that she's not even slightly tempted by the idea of someone finding her attractive that desire on her yeah he doesn't like he has no idea no what she wants at all he doesn't bother to ask no this one reminds me so much of i see a parallel here with freud's women the original hysterics the ones who refused to be categorized as he was you know misinterpreting Mm. Uh, their data in a sense and that had to happen because it was a hard lesson Freud needed to learn when he was inventing psychoanalysis that he couldn't just push his interpretations onto his patients Mm. Um, you know the women that 
were suffering from, let's say, hysterical symptoms of like psychosomatic um, problems, um, they were loud and shrill as well. Mm -hmm. You know, Dora terminated sessions early because she couldn't accept Freud's reading of, of, of her life. And, and he always regretted that. He always regretted that that analysis didn't come to a conclusion because he regretted his own behavior. He, he regretted that he was pushing his own vision, mm -hmm. let's say, autorial control over onto inflicting it on these women. And they were saying no. Mm -hmm. You know, his hysteria is, that's the whole thing about hysteria. It's rebellious. It refuses to comply with you. Uh, it forces you to kind of reconsider your position. Um, Freud always said that um, it forced him into action and forced him into uh, reinventing. And that's a good thing for theory. That keeps it healthy and alive. Later, Lacan said that, um, you know, whether or not Freud got it wrong initially is, is actually um, not a bad thing because he, he learned from his mistakes. You know, he, he, he found success because he had to rebuild himself after failure. But this, um, initially, Henry Higgins, because he's so defended, he has his own, for whatever reason that may be, whether it's his sexual orientation or whether he's just a neurotic, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't want love. Um, he wants control. Well, neither of them do. They no, both neither want of control. Them. That's right. And that's what makes it such an amazing story. It's not a love story at all. No. And even though Hollywood tried to tack on this ending <laughs> of it being oh, like yeah. a love story, it's not remotely. No. I, I firmly believe that he's not interested in women yeah. and she's not interested in men. No, it's not, for her, it's not a goal. No. Um, and uh, however much he might want to inflict that onto her as mm. a, as, as a desire. Um, and actually, uh, one might say that because he's a neurotic, he is always looking for excuses to, to evade love. And I, when I say love, in his case, um, I'm talking more about eroticism in the sense of the, the love of life. Mm. So I believe that he's a classic neurotic in the sense that he's kind of given up on the, on the real sensual pleasures of life, the unpredictable, impulsive, spontaneous mm. moments of life. And he's created this network, you know, the system of living that is all about the application of his science and finding, you know, getting results and, con and controlling things and categorizing things. That's why he's so interested in accents. He wants, he just wants to be able to place people, ca mm. categorize people so that he can know what to expect from them. Mm. They, 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 they don't then exert any power over him. So he's a neurotic in the sense that he's kind of living in this undead place where he is, um, through his kind of obsessive compulsive behavior in a sense, um, he is opting out of the raw energy of life, mm. of the, that erotic aspect, which, which has nothing to do even necessarily with romantic love, but it's about like really the, the core, the heartbeat of life, which is about, in a way, about surrendering and, and abandoning a little bit, you know, uh, and letting go. And she does do that. And she does do that. Yeah. She does She do does that, that throughout the film, really. Yeah. She's the she's the erotic object of the film, and the, and I mean that not that she's a, a necessarily a sex object or a romantic love interest. She's what Freud called the eros, like mm. the life force. She comes in, and she's full of life. Mm. It's and it's like complicated and difficult to control initially. She rebels. She says no. Yeah. To think she doesn't accept. 
this is precisely what he's trying to tame with the stripping away of her original clothing coming into the scene and with then imposing onto her everything you know the fashion of speech mm-hmm. etiquette and they actually they literally dress her up they literally dress as her well. up like a doll which i mean i do i think that her story is very comparable to the the sort of stereotypical story we hear of a model being discovered yeah. you oh. know because she's spotted on the street she's she's sort of taken and cleaned up and they remove all her signifiers so that she can signify something else wow yeah so she's i think it's very much it's like a scouting story really wow. she's been scouted yeah. and she's been <laughs> You know, that's refashioned. Refashioned, and it's and she she does she gradually, um, she gradually seems to empty in a way. You know, that life force seems to kind of, or it's not empty exactly. It's just softened and tamed, yeah. and her clothes get softer and softer, yeah. and they get prettier and prettier throughout yeah. the film. So she's in this sort of dark green, dirty coat dress. And then yeah. she's in that sort of brown frilly one that they put her in, and then they she get gets more a, fair colors. They as get it goes. yeah, they get whiter and whiter, Why and then right at the end she's in a pink one, but the embassy ball she's in a white one, and right. she's in that little night dress. So Jerry and I could have danced all night. Yeah, it's oh yeah, that's so true. Like they, I mean, they literally just um, and in some ways, I mean, there are some scenes on the whole bit where she finally learns how to pronounce the rain in the rain in Spain. Uh, flows mainly on the plains or something. Stays mainly in the plains. Stays mainly in the plains. Mm. And then they suddenly spontaneously get up and dance. I love that, by the way. Yeah. I just, I think it's so sweet. Especially at the end when all three of them are just having a little, <laughs> like a boogie. It's so cute. Um, but I was thinking that it's so funny. That's really one of the only moments where Henry Higgins is kind of lets loose. Mm. Um, he gets so excited by her correct pronunciation, you know, like that's their moment of connection. Um, that's what turns him on mm. in this in the erotic. T- well, that's what you know? is, makes it such a, an auteur film. Because I know we've been talking about Cam recently. We've been talking about the Love Witch, yeah. and we've been talking about just the 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 joy of of creating your work, and sometimes the erotic joy of creating your yeah. work. I mean, literally in, te- in oh, yeah. the sense of camp. But he has, yeah, he has that. His entire he his sexuality up. is, yeah, he does. His sexuality is very much tied to his work, yeah. or it is his work. It's, it's instead of having a sexuality, he has his work. Yeah, he's a workaholic. But I find that scene very like bittersweet because um, she only succeeds because he's nice to her for a I second. Know. You know, he says something. He says he gives her a little pat, and he says something a bit encouraging, and she can suddenly do it. And she interprets that then as a romantic moment. She yeah. says, I could have danced all night with him or something mm-hmm. in that whole routine. And then when she's in her bedroom hugging the pillow, I thought that was so cute. Mm. Like she, she, she read that as some kind of romantic encounter almost. Whereas he was just seeing it as his project. Yeah, it is his really work. sad. It's very sad. But in a way, it's a bit like Mother as well. Mm. You know, the, the author who uses the muse for his work and the muse may innocently, naively believing that there's genuine a, a genuine love connection there. There's definitely a scene in Blow Up that replicates that as yeah. well. Where it's the one where he's photographed, we'll talk about it later, where he's oh, photographing yeah. Verushka. Yeah. And it, it feels like it's going to build up into something and then it just is, there is no, there is nothing between them apart from what was needed for the photograph. Yeah, you're right. Like all... 
for the auteur or the or the creator, the artist, mm. uh, all of that libidinal kind of energy, all the erotic um, charges are directed at the work. Mm-hmm. Once that work is, you know, part of it is, is accomplished, they pull, pull away. Mm. You know, that, that, that fire is not suddenly, like, gone. Ralph Simmons cries at, at, during his shows. Have you ever seen that documentary about him? No. Dior and I. Ralph Simmons oh, wait. cries when, I... his, that's right. when his shows are finished. Yeah, that's right. That's there's something right. very tragic about finishing a piece of work, yeah. a piece of work being over. Yeah. And there's something very tragic about when their well, when their work is over together and they succeed finally. Oh wow! Everyone and it it just ends in tears. Yeah. So it's a funny one because uh, now I'm also thinking of um, you know the Charlie Kaufman film, oh, the Synecdoche, uh, New York. Yeah. The guy who he has to keep on building on his play until it becomes this like ridiculously big production mm. that has to you know take several cities to house you know this warehouse where they're producing this play or something cities within cities. The reason why he is trapped in this nightmare of creation is because he can't he he's terrified of letting go of his project. Mm. He's terrified of finishing of saying goodbye to it. So he just carries on creating, but that, but then that's even worse. He's now trapped in this zombie cycle of creation. But don't you think fashion is that is exactly. that form of creation? That's something you know, and that is why it makes people so uneasy because you, it's for people that don't ever want to finish anything, because it's there's something new every six months. I mean, not even every six months, every three months, constantly. And anyone that works in it is constantly exhausted. Yeah. And anyone that's outside it is always like, what could possibly be so important that you're working around the clock like this? But it's for, it's for the entire purpose of it is desire that's not required because it changes yeah. continuously. Yeah. And he had, you know, that's so true. The, that, that mode of creativity where you don't want to finish anything, that fashion is for you. If the, you are someone that cannot leave that can't leave well enough alone <laughs> you can't leave your project work in fashion because yeah. it will never it never finishes and it it'll always want you keep you wanting more there's never a point more. where you where pe- creators have said okay we've arrived at all the right symbols and images and pictures and no. clothes we, we can we can stop here mm. you know there's always more and what i find so interesting about the People in the film that are working class, or the you know the people that are Eliza's yeah. Eliza's people, Eliza and her people, yeah. that they're very very suspicious of consumerism. Yeah, both Eliza is she's very suspicious of what she's being offered, mm. even chocolates. You know, I've heard of girls being drugged by the likes of you, which does you know, which is another thing yeah. that it does happen. In, it does happen in uh, all sorts of industries. Sure, um, and her father, who is you know who very specifically does not want to be drawn into that capitalist world. That's right. And the 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 other people in the film have no concept of why, you know, someone would be refusing why someone would have to ask about money. She you know, she says like what will be mine and what is oh, yeah. what is yours? She, 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 to, she doesn't want to be accused yeah, of stealing. She doesn't want to be accused of stealing. Even the housekeeper is like, you know, are you going to pay her? Are you mm-hmm. how much are you going to pay her? Like you know, are you going to buy her clothes? What is what's gonna happen? What is this arrangement? Be reasonable. And they mm. can't be, you know, they can't be reasonable because they're already in this cycle of just, of just sort of mindless consumption. They want new things and they want to dress her up and they want to eat chocolates and they want to go to the ball. And they don't think about, they have no 
concept of the downside of this system. Yeah. But all of the other characters, they know, they can see that the system is something they don't want to just get involved in without knowing what they're doing. Mm. All the all the sort of lower end, you know, lower down people understand capitalism, understand how scary it is. Oh yeah, but they don't at all. I think that's there is. They're very detached from it all. No, they just yeah, they have no they because don't they don't see the ramifications of what they're doing. There aren't any ramifications no, for them. That's right. Which is exactly the way all you know all businesses work. You know, if you're at the top, then you're lucky, yeah. and if you're being but if you're being exploited. The, you know, the most you can do is ask to see your contract or ask to ask for some clarity on how exactly how you're being. Yeah. And when he and he inadvertently ruins more people's lives than just Eliza's, he ruins her father's life as well because he sends her, he sends him on this speaking engagement for which he gets millions of pounds and he becomes rich and it ruins his life. Yeah. He has to conf- he has to conform. He has to get married rather than just live in sin with his girlfriend and he has to and everyone wants to borrow from him and he's got all of these friends that aren't his friends and mm-hmm. and he's specifically tried to stay away from money the entire time yeah. and there's this mistake I think that that if you're if you're at the bottom people think you aspire up oh yeah and you don't that's always the assumption that's the assumption and that's definitely the assumption with just with just consumerism that you must want more things if you don't want more things, you're strange. Yeah, right? yeah. It's, a, it's some kind of anomaly that needs to be corrected in you. Mm. Like, um, that's right. It's um, and it's so interesting because when, so when they when the experiment is is developing as it is in the film, when they attend this very glamorous ball, mm-hmm. and there's this Hungarian guy there. And he says that, you know, he can, he can spot fakers and he knows who's who in Europe. And um, he's always on alert looking for frauds mm. and people who claim that there's people that they're not. So this kind of then injects this element of, um, I guess, intrigue in that scene. Because now we're thinking, oh my God, Eliza's going to get caught out. But she performs faultlessly. And she not only... Uh, impresses this Hungarian guy, but he she doesn't just fool him, um, in in the sense that she, you know her real identity is not uncovered. It's it's more than that. She somehow persuades him, or without trying, he becomes convinced that she's in fact a Hungarian member of the royal family. Mm-hmm. So he's projecting his own fantasies of idealism onto her. Yeah. So she's really, it's really interesting. So much of a blank slate has she become that she could be absolutely whoever anyone wants to be. She's a dream catcher. Yeah. She is a dream catcher. And she has all of these (laughs) specifically men just projecting that, you know, so Freddie's standing outside her house singing all the bloody time. Oh yeah, Freddie. Oh God, Freddie. So lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, the scene in the the Ascot scene. Let's talk about the Ascot scene. Let's talk about that. The two scenes that I used to really love as a child are the opening scene where all the people are coming out of the opera. Yeah. Because it looked like a fashion show. Yeah, it did actually. And then the the Ascot scene where everyone's, as we said before, standing very still. Just again, like in fashion, not allowed to smile. That's right. No one's allowed to smile. No one's allowed to get excited. No one's allowed to have a libido or any kind of erotic energy. Mm. So they got there, and and that's and that's where <laughs> she mannequin. makes a mistake. Yeah, because she, you know, and that is another thing that I think is 
is very, they, I really do feel like this film is very consumed with fashion and not just because Cecil Beaton was yeah. designing all those costumes. Maybe, I, and I think that he must have had more of a hand in it than just designing the costumes. He I did think sets. so. I think yeah. he obviously had some kind of authorship over this film. Yeah. Because, and he's and he's like a fascinating figure as well, this sort of openly gay fashion photographer yeah. at the time when it wasn't that wasn't acceptable. No, it wasn't normalized at all at that time. And you know, just and he was just this tremendous gossip and and this sort of polymath, and he could write and he could design clothes and he could take photographs mm. and he could do everything. I really and he, he must have really had. I think he must have had such an impact. I think if you had him working on something, yeah. he must have just his vision just must have spilled out Absolutely. all over. Even the opening credits are just beautiful. Yeah. There are all these flowers. Oh, so lovely. It's oh, it's so lovely. Yeah, so, and that is where she makes a mistake by being excited (laughs) at this exciting event, rather when everyone else is just doing whatever the Edwardian version of just being cool is, you know, there's this pretense of of not caring. Yeah, and it's just, it's so funny because she looks so amazing. So she arrives and she's this like mystery woman, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, no one's ever seen her before. She looks impeccable. She's uh, she she's super glam. They, because they've chosen her dress. They've all, yeah. I do like it when he says not flower. I don't want things with weeds here. It's weeds there. Maybe it's <laughs> like, and he goes. Like, I think a tasteful bow, and then he gets like interrupted by the housekeeper. And uh, and she's got this extraordinary hat. Yeah, it's really incredible. And also, she's I think she's got pink on her. Yes. And everyone else is just in black and white. That's right. That's right. There's, there's she's got flowers. Pink. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Exactly. Which is sort of her thing. Yeah. Her, yeah. Sort of her signify. Yeah. They're actually the only thing she has left that signify yeah. where she came from. That's so true. Mm. So in this monochromatic world, she's got you know she's a little bit ooh, she's a little bit like exotic. Yeah. So she appears. And uh, right away, Freddie is, he seems quite taken with her. When he ignores her in the beginning of the film, That's he? true. He's, she's trying to get him to buy flowers. And, right. Oh, no, he knocks her over and treads her flowers. He knocks her over, yeah. yeah. So she's basically invisible to him yeah. initially, whereas now, now he's, he's suddenly enraptured. Yeah. yeah. So it, what's really hilarious to me is the contrast between, at this point, she's, she's becoming much let's say, more, um, she's mastered the pronunciations, she speaks, uh, you know, let's say, uh, her, her, her tone of voice and her accent have changed. We can see those transformations occur. Mm-hmm. But She just a, speaks in idioms. Yeah. And she can to say the things <laughs> that she's been taught to say. Exactly, and it's like, yeah, and it, and it's also the topic of what she wants to talk about as well. That's quite controversial. Yeah, about she's been her. told she can talk about the weather and your health, and because of her background, her idea of one's health, all these stories she's got about people's health yeah. are her so horrifying. <laughs> yeah, about whether or not she had, you know, her aunt had influenza or, yeah, or was poisoned, or was there poisoned. so that people could steal her hats. Her straw hat. Her straw hat that should have come to me. Yeah, it was pinched. (laughs) I think the script is pretty much, is just pretty much George Benshaw's plan. But there's not a lot of changes. So it is genius. It is genius, absolutely. It's up there with sort of Oscar Wilde or anyone else at that time. It's so quotable. Yeah, it's so pithy. Mm -hmm. And and, and Freddie's, you know, no matter what she says, he finds it all so charming. Um, And then... I think she says something like done, you know, done her in. Yeah, and the, and then this other lady uh, who doesn't understand what, mm-hmm. what what's being talked about and she's like, "Well, what whatever does it mean?" you know? Yeah. Like and, and it's passed off as the new small talk, yes. like this modern way of speaking. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's just such a 
charming scene, but also it's so, it's just saying so much. Mm. There's so many aspects to it, really. And it just made me think how, you know, the, it, it was their attempt to kind of start testing out this social experiment in a real-life setting, you know, IRL, not just in the house, mm. and the potential dangers of that. Um, there's one guy in, in the scene who, he doesn't even say one line. We, we just see him reacting, like cringing. Um, and he's a really good example of someone responding, and, you know, reacting in a judgmental way to that thing that sticks out, you yeah. know? It's, it's the thing that Freud talked about in Civilization and its discontents, that we're so preoccupied with conforming collectively um, that actually uh, these ideals that then get set out that we have to meet these requirements of us that are imposed on us and we have to satisfy, if we don't uh, achieve those expectations, it just creates neurosis. It actually, it actually works against the whole purpose of having a civilization, which is about bringing people together and ensuring people don't feel lonely and isolated. But all it's doing is creating neuro neurotic people, people who are more concerned about following the rules of civilization than just belonging and not feeling left out. It's really interesting that paradox. And she's never she doesn't fit in anywhere. No. She's too she's like completely luminous yeah. in on the streets. And she's also too she's got too much energy for that refined society as well. But she's not she's not unhappy no. at any point in the film really. No. Apart from that scene right at the which is my favourite scene in the film. It's got my favourite line. Yeah. When they take and they bring her home and she's done really well at the ball and she's like deflated because um, she's yeah doesn't know what's going to happen to her and it's over and she realizes that she's not important to any of these people and it's really like crushing and he and they all go to bed and she stays up and he can and Rex Harrison comes into the room and goes where devil are my slippers and she throws them at him she goes it's it's just my favorite line of I think all time she goes here are your slippers here and here take them and may you never have a day's luck with them <laughs> Oh, it's brilliant. He's just completely baffled. Yeah. Has no idea, even when she explains to him, has no idea what's... It never occurred to, her, to him no. at all that throughout this process, that, you know, all of this is being done to her mm. and that maybe she, you know, what are her feelings about this? You know, how is this changing her life for the better, for the worse? And what's her future now? It never, he never gave it a moment's thought. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's, a, and, but she's still so, there's such humanity in her character because even after they have that massive row and she gives back all the jewelry to make a point, mm. um, and she hands over this little ring that he bought her in Brighton and, and, and I think he like, he throws, he throws it, he doesn't throw it at her, he throws no. it into the fireplace. That's right. She goes back and finds it yeah. again. There's and he said, you've hurt me. You've really hurt, wounded me to the heart. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> she has no, he just has no concept of other people's feelings Not at whatsoever. all. Not at all. Yeah, he's mm. a very detached character. He's, but the thing about Rex Harrison, I've got a really good Rex yeah. Harrison story. Do you want to hear it? Yes, Rex Harrison is, is, was just a detached man. Right. He was very similar to the characters that he played. Okay. He was married a lot of times. I think six. Really? And um, there's a story about him having an argument with one of the wives, with one of the later wives. And they had such a, a terrible argument that she stormed out of the house. And he leaned, 
out of the front room window and went, come back. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know her name. Yeah, I couldn't remember her name. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's great. Yeah. And I think that Rex Harrison brought a lot of who he was as a person to that role. And I don't know why he was like that. I don't know anything about Rex Harrison's life or childhood mm. or, or relationships or anything. But he, I know he got married a lot. Wow. And that he was incredibly rude to a lot of people. Wow. Yeah. I <laughs> He's think, perfect casting here. <laughs> yeah, he had, um, I think Gosh. he had an affair with an actress that killed herself as well. Wow. I'm sure that's a story about him as well. Mm. Just, like, just tons and tons of stories about him. His wow. sort of mistreatment of women. But they're, I don't know, as they're sort of... He's not sort of thought of as a monster. He's just thought of as a this very kind of strange and complicated mm. man, basically. No, he's yeah. I think he's very good casting here, mm. and he's sort of an very enigmatic. Yeah, he is. You know? And I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, I think that he was very mysterious and very. I mean, he's very English. Very English. and English men of that time <laughs> and that generation were very kind of buttoned up and sure. very unemotional. He probably went to boarding school. He probably you know had a horrible time there. Mm. All of those things. I'm not making excuses for. No, no, no. But yeah, but, um, he definitely you know and. She, and he's definitely a very di- different generation to Audrey Hepburn, who must have seemed like such a strange creature. Considering that it's, it, it's made in the 60s, it's when there the was 60s. the gen- that generation divide was becoming very, very pronounced yeah. and very, very <laughs> obvious and very visible yeah. everywhere. Why do you think that Audrey Hepburn mm. is so often cast in the role of someone who's made over? Mm. My Fair Lady, Sabrina, yeah. Funny, Funny Face. Face. I can't think of any others, but that's quite a few. Makeovers. She's makeovers and Audrey Hepburn, who's beautiful she was a, anyway. Yeah. She doesn't need to be made over. No. As, I suppose, no, no makeover scenes are really that necessary in films. Yeah. But there is something, what is? what do you think it is about her that sparks? <laughs> I mean, I always think, I, I love a good makeover. Mm. I've been a complete makeup fiend myself, and uh, watching probably way too many hours of makeup tutorials on YouTube. I think Audrey Hepburn was the YouTube star before YouTube. Yeah. Um, but what is it about her that compels these storylines or brings about this kind of casting? I, if I had to venture a guess, I'd have to say that, do you think it's because she's kind of a gamine? I suppose so. She really was, she looked much more like a model than any other actress. Exactly. She's a bit of a clothes horse. Yeah. I mean, just considering Breakfast, Breakfast at Tiffany's, for example, um, at one point, Marilyn Monroe was considered for that. Yeah, part. because that Audrey Hepburn's style of femininity wasn't even a no. wasn't at all idealized. Anyone would want. Yeah. No, you know, she was like a mean. She was, you know, very very slim, petite, um, and I wonder if that has something to do with mm-hmm. it. I wonder if, you know, if it weren't for the extravagant, you know, hyper feminine makeovers that she maybe lingered too dangerously in the kind of androgynous zone. Mm. I don't know. Yeah, what do, that's what do true. you think? No, you're right. I like how you said androgynous zone, like erogenous zone. <laughs> <laughs> I was just a bit distracted by that little tick <laughs> that happened there. I like, somebody should make a movie called Androgynous Zone. Andro- oh, Friday down. <laughs> I'm really sorry about the rustling of my paper on this episode, by the way. I didn't have time to do anything digitally, and I wrote everything down, and I'm <laughs> carting around just like books with bookmarks in them and things like that. Um, no, I don't know what it is. There is something that about Audrey Hepburn that is very much much closer to fashion. And you know, it's not like she was the only uh, actress to sort of collaborate with the no. designer. You know, you had Grace Kelly... 
wearing who's who's clothes did Grace Kelly wear? Uh, I mean, with the Hermes bag and the, but she was definitely dressed by someone. But no, there is something, there is just something about Audrey Hepburn that is so much more appreciated by the fashion industry than anyone else. Yeah, and I just think, I wonder whether, particularly in those days, you know, post-50s, where, like, images of women, predominantly, um, sexually attractive women, tended to be, like, uh, voluptuous, uh, kind of, you know, um, glamorous homemakers mm. kind of thing, where it was very kind of attached to their place in the family, etc. So to have someone like Audrey, who was, um, if maybe if it weren't for the overloading mm. of, of the feminine sig- signifiers through the process of the makeover, she might have been, oh my God, a tomboy. Yeah, like, it's, it's true. She is in all of those films at first. She's... she's kind of takes on a more, like, you know, a more masculine role. Yeah. Or a role that is maybe even, it's definitely outside of the sort of, that kind of romantic yeah. storyline that women should have. Yeah. There's a really good uh, quote, I think it's Richard Dyer, who says that classical Hollywood films always question the status quo while simultaneously enforcing it. Oh, wow. And that's something that My Fair Lady does hugely. There's so much in there that questions... This, you know, yes. capitalism, it questions relationships between men and women, it questions all of these things. But at the end, all of those all of those institutions are are reinforced Absolutely. and everything falls back into its 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 rightful place in the status quo. Yeah, the very last scene in My Fair Lady is um, you know, she, in a way she kind of come back she, she comes back to him and uh he's there lounging in his chair with his feet up and he's asking about his slippers so we're meant to we're led to believe that she's she's returned to fetching his slippers in a way yeah like maybe almost admitting defeat in a sense so it's an interesting ending um it's a very hollywood ending it's very hollywood ending (gasps) yeah admitting Uh, that there's maybe not a place for her without yeah but there's not a place for her where she that if she can't be amused, then she's not anything. Yeah. And so there's no place for her without her her artist or her creator. Which is like a very wonder. depressing, yeah. Yeah. A very depressing. Yeah, very depressing message. Yeah, and the fact that you know, and it's this kind of strange, uh, symbiotic relationship. Of course, where where is the artist without the, the, their muse? Mm. You know, nowhere. Um, they disappear. So in a way, it's a kind. Of, if we read it purely allegorically, maybe it's a little bit more hopeful mm-hmm. in the sense that it's if it's just a commentary about uh, the artist's process mm. and not about like a gendered story about places of you know men and women in society. I think it's a lot more hopeful. I yeah. think looking at it metaphorically. Okay, shall we move on to blow up? Yeah. Okay, so. This is only two years later. Yeah, 1966. Antonioni. Yeah. Um, I remember when we first did, did this podcast, we talked about Burning Lake is Missing. Yeah. Antonioni is another European director with a fascination for London. Yeah. <laughs> um, along with Plansky. Yeah. And it is the story of a fashion photographer mm-hmm. who is rumoured to be based on David Bailey. Yeah. Um, who was the sort of 60s fashion photographer who really 
had a had a big hand in changing what fashion looked like, yeah. and in sort of bringing fashion from something that was very aspirational and very adult into mm-hmm. something that was very young and a bit more democratic. Um, That's right. And the story is of I think he's called Thomas. Yeah, Thomas. The fashion photographer. He's played by David Hemmings. He is, and not by um, David Bailey's friend Terence Stamp, as That's right. Bailey wanted, which I think would have been good as well. I think so. Um, he. Um, it is about his sort of day-to-day life Yeah. Um, as a tyrannical photographer of models. He's not mm. a very nice person. No. <laughs> um, about his sort of sexual exploits and his driving around London. There's this sort of backdrop of swinging London. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of plot point on which this film turns is that he witnesses without realising that he's witnessed what he later thinks is a murder. Yeah. So he's taking photographs in the park. He Of a couple. Of a couple. Yeah. Sort of in an embrace. Yeah. And it's only when the woman in the couple insists on having the photographs back that That's he right. starts to become suspicious. And the... He blows up this photograph again and again to see what it is in the picture that she doesn't want him to see. And because of the nature of the format itself, is never sure what he sees. That's the thing. So it's kind of, for me, it really lies in that kind of field of fantasy. Because mm-hmm. is he just, is it just a figment of his imagination? Or did he really witness something? And if it is a figment of his imagination, where what part of his personality does that stem from? Yeah, exactly. What is where? Why is that? Why has that happened to him? Why that happened to him? Is it because he's a psychotic? Uh, is he just hallucinating, or is he paranoid, or something? Or I think there might. There, I think there's a link here with the fashion world. There definitely yeah. is. <laughs> and I mean, the world. The fact that this is about the fashion world. Yeah is important. The fact that this is about the photography world is also very important and there is a ton of stuff you can read about the philosophical concepts around the photograph Mm -hmm. and how much that scares people. As we've Mm -hmm. talked about the way that fashion scares people, but the photograph scares people too and it always Mm -hmm. has. You know, there are it's I think it's Roland Barthes that says, you know, that it's uncanny because What's in a photograph is always dead, so it ceased to exist. That's right. And Otto Rank, the psychoanalyst who followed Freud in 1925, he wrote a book called The Double. And in this, you, you should really read it. I would it. love to read that. I think there's, amazing. There's a digital copy online, actually. It's really, really good. Um, it's a fantastic book. It's basically, um, he's looking through history and studying um, various kind of like... Um, superstitions and you know folkloric beliefs and mythologies so really kind of looking at almost like an anthropological and running up to like 1925 like that at that point in time and studying examples of the way that the idea of the double represented in various ways whether people saw their own shadow or their image in in the mirror or a photograph or just seeing someone who looked like them, or twins, or whatever it was. How initially the double was seen as a benevolent thing. Uh, the sign of the double was there as a harbinger of uh, po- positivity, that you have a guardian angel, that you know, you, you'll uh, live a long, healthy life, someone is watching over you, etc. The double was a kind of protector. Mm. And then something 
switched. At some point in history, there was a real uh, shift in the perception of the double, and suddenly those same things were harbingers of death. Mm. You know, um, you know, if you if you if you drop a mirror and you crack it, it's seven years of bad luck. Or if you see someone who looks at you, who looks like you. They, they are um, they're following you. They have ill intent. And he actually gave examples also in literature, like uh, Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe's short story, William Wilson, about a man who's followed by his exact lookalike. Um, um, he also gave examples of, like, you know, Dorian Gray, um, the rotting, you know, the, the, the painting, etc. Um, so the point being that he also did refer to sort of native uh, indigenous people in North America who were absolutely terrified of having their photos taken. And they were, they had a real phobia of it. Like mm -hmm. they had a real mistrust of the photographer's intent. And they claim that um, the camera has the capacity to steal your soul. And they just refused to be photographed. Um, so it kind of is interesting, you know, if we think about it in those terms, mm. about the the pro, you know what photography really is and who photographers really are. Exactly. Yeah, there is a there's also writer. I wrote about this for a little while for um, during my MA. Uh, theorist called David Campany. Oh yeah, he's also a, a curator. Really good, really interesting guy. And he says something that about that films about photographers always seem to portray them as like slightly unhappy people like a rear window if you think about it um blow up miserable yeah <laughs> oh like oh really i don't know there was uh, like that really what is the film with robin williams about the proto processor who uh oh. gets like a really unhealthy interest one in hour that photo yeah <laughs> yeah um that's and so that, true yeah and there is this sort of link with this idea that if you're the that you know what are you what what is your business in <laughs> taking these photographs of people, of, you know, projecting your yeah. your desires onto onto people. That's you know, there's so the, it, there is something a little there's something a little sinister because there it's is something sinister. there's things about there's things about projection, there's also things about possession, there's yeah. things about desire, there's there's all sorts of things and there's also something about distance. Yeah. There's something it's something between you and another person. Um, yeah, now I'm thinking of all those serial killer movies where the 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 perpetrator sometimes is filmed in a room with photographs yeah. of you know of let's say the various targets mm -hmm. uh, or stalkers yeah who maybe just fixate on one person they may not be a serial killer but they inundate themselves mm -hmm. in like this kind of um, copious amounts of ph photographs like physical images pinned to the wall yeah there's yeah. there's such an interesting and it's it's uncanny anyway to see a still photograph in a moving film. Yeah. Because you're not you're not expecting stills. You're not you know, you're expecting them to come alive and you're expecting them to do something. You're That's expecting right. something to come out of them or you're expecting them to move. Yeah. And they don't. And it's and it's this and it's, it's unsettling. It's, it's very unsettling. And it's there's it's a very unsettling scene when he's blowing up this picture and looking at it and you don't see it because maybe there's nothing there to see. But you could the, but you're looking at it and you know you should see some and it's it's just a really unpleasant feeling. It's very, very yeah. tense scene. It goes on for about ten minutes. Yeah. Of just him coming in and out of the dark room with these bigger and bigger, grainier and grainier yeah. photos. And when you do see it, when you do see what you think is a murder, 
it makes you it makes your stomach turn over. Yeah. It's really it's really upsetting and it un- unsettling. Yeah, it's very disturbing because suddenly our gaze as an audience is aligned with his. Yeah, and it's we're in a place maybe we don't want to be. Uh, adopting his perspective of the world. Mm. Oh, okay. So let's talk about his perspective let's, let's talk about and it. his gaze. Because, you know, this episode is about the, about control yeah. and power and the, in, within the fashion industry or the film industry or any kind of creative industry. Yeah. And it's Thomas's... And the thing about fashion is... And maybe we should have talked about this before, but we'll probably we'll be talking about it all over the series. Because yeah. I was sort of struggling to figure out exactly what fashion was. In the same way that you sometimes have to talk about exactly what art is, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and it, it's because it's not just clothes, mm. you know, and there are clothes that aren't fashion, and mm. there is, you know, and there is fashion that doesn't have any clothes in, yeah, and so it can't just be that. And it, I was thinking about, and I, there are a lot, there are a lot of definitions of, of what it is, and we could talk about that all the time. But there's something about fashion in that it only has value and only really has existence in being seen, yeah. So it's a very, it's a, it's about you and the viewer. And it brings, that's why it brings all of that, you know, John Berger stuff about, you know, being looked at and being seen. Yeah. And as the, but as the instigator and the sort of possessor of the, of the gaze, Mm. Thomas has like absolute power over everyone for the first half of the film. You know, it's only his, it's his camera and his gaze that makes anything valuable. You know, only those dresses that he's photographing are only valuable through his, through his gaze. Yeah. the girls that come to his door wanting to be photographed, they're only they only will feel valuable if he photographs them. He doesn't, and so he doesn't, and they're so they're you know discarded and they're cheap. Yeah. That I also think is a rape scene. Oh yeah, absolutely. It doesn't. I don't know if it was ever supposed to be, but I really I, I find it. So it's Jane Birkin and yeah. what's her name? The what is her name? The actress who went and released all those singles in French, but she's actually just an English actress. Oh, um, Gillian something? Gillian Hills. Gillian Hills. Yeah, she was. She really was the blonde that, one. Yeah, yeah. she's the blonde one. Um, so yeah. they come to his door and they say they want to be photographed, and so he hasn't got time. And they come back. Yeah. And there's a right. There's a scene where they, one of them holds the other one down, and he like pulls off their tights. Yeah. It's really upsetting, and oh, it's yeah. amongst the paraphernalia of the photographs. And then afterwards, they say, "Are you going to photograph?" And he says, "No, I haven't got time. Piss off." The yeah, more I watch it, the more it's a horrible, horrible scene. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it just kind of amplifies the fact that he just has this assumption, you know, this this entitled position that he takes up mm. um, in his encounter with other people because that's precisely what his camera is doing. His camera is constantly devouring um, content mm. and then he curates that content. He decides what the camera, you know, what, what what passes through the camera, what what deserves to be seen. Mm. When we look at it like that, it's, that's a tremendous amount of power. Yeah, he is, he's very powerful and he wields it in a very, in a, a horrible way. He's not oh, benevolent yeah. with his power. He's, he's cruel. Yeah, he is. And again, like in, similarly to My Fair Lady, the people that subvert his, there's the people that sort of subvert his power and rebel against his power are people that have a different, understanding of what's valuable yeah. and there's a scene he's got a he's has some kind of desire for his his friend's wife that's right which is sort of she's like a side a sort of side character they live next you know they yeah uh, maybe they live next door or, i don't know that he goes to their house once yeah. he sees them having sex and 
the friend is a painter and he, yeah. he says, I want to buy one of your paintings and put it in a photograph. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, they're just not for sale. Mm. I just don't want to sell it to you. Yeah. It doesn't, I'm sure that does happen. He says, oh, it's oh not, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. don't. And it's just, it's, he's just blocked from his, so his, his gaze is like, is one that, that ascribes value to things and he's blocked by someone that won't give him a value. It's such an interesting concept. Also, the fact that the way that he like wields his camera—it's all—it's very phallic. It is very phallic. He's always got it on him, like around his neck. Yeah, yeah. And the way that he sort of climbs on top of a model—and I mean, that's oh, a very yes, iconic that, scene. It's very iconic that scene with him and Bruce. And I always also find—I find it very difficult film to watch because I find yeah. I hate him. I dislike him so much. Yeah, and I dislike. His, there's nothing really redeeming about his there's character. There's nothing redeeming about him, <laughs> apart from, again, that he's he becomes a detective. And when characters become a detective, I like them a lot more. Yeah. Because I'm... Because that's the... They're that's more interesting, we, yeah. They're more interesting, and they're more aligned with the film director. Yeah, and the, right. you know, And they're proper artists. Whereas yeah. he's not an artist, he's just... He's, I mean... Well, he kind of is, but it, he becomes more of an artist as he goes on. That's right. That's right. I think the scene with Vershka is like um, probably the, at that moment when and there's it's a kind of like laced with so much eroticism. Obviously, yeah, sort of like it's on top of her. Yeah, she's sort of kind of she's performing, him, performing for yeah. him. Yeah, and then afterwards he just gets up and walks off, and she lays there. That's right. Not long after that scene, when he's trying to like direct a series of models, he's so harsh to them. Yeah. He's, he's so, very Henry Higgins. He's very Henry Higgins. He's mm. so impatient and he barks orders at them and things are not going quite right and he's so frustrated. Mm. Um, and they're voiceless. They're and they're voiceless. Speak. Yeah, absolutely. So in a way, I'm now thinking, because he said, there's one thing he says, I, I can't remember when exactly it is in the film that he says this, but he's, he, he talks about how he kind of resents, it's sort of inferred that he resents having to do all the commercial work that he does. Yeah, and he wants to take, he wants to make a book of his yeah. sort of street photographs. And if someone says to him that, I don't think that's a, I don't, I don't like think a viable, a yeah. It's viable. Which is, I mean, it is a kind of about a frustrated artist. He wants to be yeah. taken seriously. Yeah, he feels like he has to, to pay the bills and to make things run. He, ha he has to do this commercial stuff, which he kind of resents. He despises, and he despises models. He despises most of the women that he oh, yeah. that he knows. Yeah, he can't stand them. And it's all because they are, they are... Well, I mean, and that is another reason, I think, why fashion is regarded with so much suspicion, is because it's, a, it's one of the only art forms that is largely a female thing. Yeah. You know, that it's, it's something, and it's, it's not it's harder to sort of fit into an established sort of uh, canon of art history because it is so much to do with the fe like fe women's lives mm -hmm. and women's sort of experiences, women's, experiences yeah. women's desires yeah. or, or men's desires for women or gay men's desire of, of you know, for what, what they want, what they think women should look like, you know, mm -hmm. like lots, there's lots of things going on there, but because it is so tied up with femininity, I think that lays up, lay, that adds another layer of mistrust. Yeah. And it certainly does for him. Oh yeah, definitely. I really feel like he, he perceives these female models as, you know, the, he, 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 he feels, I think, just angry that he's having to waste his precious time as an artist mm -hmm engaging in photography in this banal way with these women who he just dismisses out of hand. Mm. Whereas, 
you know, he's he's trying to uh, make ends meet, but really his true passion is this other, you know, more edgy stuff that he wants to do, but doesn't that just doesn't get really taken seriously. So yeah, absolutely. There's this, and he I think he then makes that equivalence between the kind of like mediocre commercial fashion world and women. Mm. He makes that equivalence, and he therefore has this kind of natural kind of um, sort of default position uh, dismissal of women. And what's interesting is that, so just if you look at the mise-en-scene of when he's in that park, and he just kind of, you know, maybe even unconsciously just taking snapping photos, maybe not in, initially looking with intent. Mm. But he's looking, you know, he's, he's fixating his, he's fixing his camera on, directing his camera on this couple. Um, and, but then later, um, he's being taken to task, like he's, he's being challenged about the possession of these photos and it's, it's claimed that, you know, he shouldn't have done that, whatever. It's precisely at that moment that it's uh, in, the in the structure of how the scene is con constructed that he then starts to see something. Mm. There's, he starts to see... Um, I don't know. I mean, this is just my, my view of it, but he, it, I think this, this scene kind of confirms that when, and maybe this is too much of a feminist reading of the, of the film. There's never too much of a feminist <laughs> reading of the film. Come on. <laughs> but it's only at the moment where the woman imposes her agency and tries to, di to divert his vision mm. that he then starts to perceive, you know, something as sinister as murder lurking in the background that there's that kind of violence mm. um, in the recesses that actually is uh, governing this woman's behavior. And it starts to all get linked up, mm. you know? And I just wonder whether psychoanalytically there's something to that. I definitely think there's something yeah. to that. And she's a strange character. Yeah. Because um, he doesn't... I mean, he, he tries to do the same things to her that he does to other women. He tries to sleep with her, he tries to photograph her. Yeah. She's not really having any of it. No. Um, it, those tactics don't work with her. They don't. She's not interested in being seen. She's no. not interested in being seen. At whereas all. all of the other women want to be seen by him. It's you know, it's important to their it's important to their careers and their lives yeah. that they're seen by him. And she doesn't. She wants the opposite. She wants to be erased from from his you know his backlog, his history. His, That's right. Wants, she just wants that film, and she wants not to be on there. And she's also yeah, so true. She's got a very. She's got this very kind of strange, mysterious way of communicating. She gives him a fake phone number. Yeah. She doesn't talk very much. She's you know she has these long silences. She won't answer his questions. Okay, have you noticed? I'm really I'm really proud of this. Mm -hmm. So, the scene where he's taking the photographs in the park. Um, there's breeze, mm -hmm. and the scene where he's looking at the and at the photographs and blowing them up, mm -hmm. the same breeze comes in over the over the soundtrack. Really? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, I can faintly remember that. And yeah. that's partly what makes it so uncanny because that noise shouldn't be there because <gasps> no. it's noise because that belongs to the image. photographs yeah. and not noises that belong to the scene. Oh my God. And he's and all of the other noises in the film are noises that he makes. You know, his wine pouring, his record, his voice, his like shit barking on his Moving around, car. yeah. Yeah, and so... And this is oh my God. the sort of first signifier that he's kind of lost control of his immediate surroundings because there's things in there that shouldn't be in there, and that's that that 
that or or that it's that he's psychotic mm-hmm. and as he you know looks at those photographs he remembers that noise but it happens again right at the end of the film where he's watching those mimes play a yeah. game of tennis and as he walks away you can hear the noise of a real tennis ball which can't possibly be there because they're playing they're miming, they're, miming. they're not playing with the tennis ball oh my god it's and it's it's just this dislocation it's of dislocation this. and it's you know it's dislocation that that belongs only to him as a character because he has this 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 kind of fake world you know and he has he he's the one that he's the person that creates these photographs therefore he's the person that is in touch with things that aren't really true that's right things that aren't really real wow that is so true. I never thought of it like that it's, before. Well, I was so excited when I realised <laughs> what a sound film My Fair Lady was and what a sound film blow up is. But there is this extra layer of the story. There's a lot there to look at. Obviously, it's an incredible film. Yeah. But there is this thing where sounds start coming into places that they don't belong. I love that. I really, really like mm. that. And I think it's actually a really clever way of handling the still image in film. Mm. The mere suggestion that... Some there may be some other sensorial dimension to it. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, we're in a very uncanny space. Yeah, and it's terrifying. It is really terrifying, and it's terrifying because he's made those photos. That's right. You know, and he thinks that he has this. You know, he and he uses that camera as this, as this way of having power over people. And yeah. suddenly, it's you know, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, it's these prints are getting enormous, and they're you know they're like taking up the whole room <laughs> in their scale. And yeah, in their scale, and in their the the no, noise they make, and the way that they scare him. Yeah. And it's a very it's like a very good moral story about someone who doesn't who's using his power wrongly and doesn't understand how it's going to come back to haunt him. Literally. Yeah. But also someone who you know, irrespective of his. Uh, very questionable, questionable attitudes towards women, and then it's definitely an issue there. It, it is moral story in, in in the idea of how much he's fused his own identity with his work mm-hmm. as an auteur, as someone who's very disillusioned. Yeah, kind of like occupying this space of being a you know, let's say for the sake of argument, a talented photographer, a talented artist. Mm. But working in a medium that's now being kind of bastardized yeah. by consumerism, by, you know, hollow representations, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. you know, the frivolous world of fashion, however way he perceives it, you know. And so he's now in this kind of strange position of working in a medium that he does feel, this ambivalent space mm-hmm. of working in a medium that where he does feel passionate about his work, but he also feels he's selling out. Yeah. And so occupying those two places simultaneously, it creates this kind of derangement of the senses where now he's, his, the work that he's so wedded to, um, that has actually, he's fused his identity with, now consumes him, uh, consumes his mind, mm. uh, takes up too much space, you know, is blown up, blown out of proportion, yes. you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I do make a big deal about him being a, a horrible person, but it's also, you do have a lot of sympathy for him in this film. And Antonio only made films about alienated people, yeah. and he is someone that is alienated, and he yeah. is alone. And he's in alone. Life. Yeah, he really is. I mean, he probably self-isolates mm. by these tactics of being just like a dick, mm. you know? But the point is that his he, he does lead a solitary existence. Um, yeah, you're right. Um, there is that kind of 
I guess, pattern in Antonioni, for sure, of like depicting these isolated characters. Have you ever seen uh, Identification of a Woman? No. Oh, that's my favorite Antonioni film. Oh my god, that sounds yeah. I've never even heard of that. You'll love it. Okay. I'll yeah, be you'll love it. it. I'll watch it after this. I think also him as a, you know, there's so much in Blow Up that might also be some kind of, um, I don't know, like maybe even the director himself. Yeah, I'm sure there is. You know, lamenting mm. about what's become of the film industry. You know, I'm a director, he might be thinking, working in this medium that I love, but now I'm, you know, maybe expected mm to um, create certain works. Yeah, and I suppose to move with the times. And that to move film with the times. Is all, it's like a very, yeah. very, <laughs> it's very specifically about a certain point in time, about a certain kind of revolution that was happening and, and was, I suppose, forced to happen to all creators. Yeah. You know, there was like, there was a certain look, there was a certain style, there was a certain philosophy, yeah. fashion, but, yeah. but also, you know, way of, way of being, way of yeah. relating to each other, way of, Oh, and yeah. I, you know, I think there is a parallel between, again, that Ascot scene and this of not being seen to care too much. Mm-hmm. And that must have been, that's, oh, yeah. you know, must have been a tough one for creatives, you know, not being, you know, the, the sexual revolution must have been difficult to anyone romantic. <laughs> it's, it's all, it, it, I don't know, when I ever people talk about how they'd love to go to the 60s, I always think it seems like the most horrible, dark, depressive strange time in the 60s I would have been Catherine Deneuve locked up in her apartment yeah, I would have been too. I would have been yeah completely <laughs> just unable to go outside it sounds like alienating this strange kind of existentialist like nihilistic yeah. philosophy everywhere and also everyone's just very close to death because of the sort of impending yeah. nuclear war yeah and you can see it so much in Blow Up. Oh, Blow yeah. Up is, is those preoccupations. Any, yeah, all of those preoccupations. There's no lies about how old the 60s really were in Blow Up. It's yeah. very, very, I think it's a very accurate portrait. It's very honest. Yeah. Oh, another sound bit. Um, when there he goes to that gig, which is oh, yeah. the Yardbirds. The Yardbirds, yeah. And they're all dancing to no music for a minute, aren't they? That's so true. So again, there's a disconnect. Yeah. Well, they're standing still and waiting for the music. I can't remember, That's but right. there is a bit where... They're supposed like mannequins. to be music. Yeah. And there isn't any. And also, what do you That's make so of true. the when he sees Verushka a second time and she's at that party yeah. and he says, you're supposed to be in Paris. And she says, I am in Paris. That, that made me film. think of, um, you know, the scene in Lost Highway? Yes. When the mystery man I'm says... I'm in your house. <laughs> oh my God, I just got goosebumps. All the hair on my arm stood up. It's just, that's horrible. It's so creepy. Yeah, it is like that. It is. And it's another way in which... It really, it's, there is the, you can see the film in two parts and yeah. it's the, you know, sort of before the park scene and after the park scene and, and, you know, he does have so much control over other people and suddenly everyone else is just talking nonsense. Yeah. And nothing makes sense. And Not, it's, it's pure nihilism. Things, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's like this kind of, you know, it's that kind of uh, moral relativist kind of postmodernist thing yeah. where everything is detached from its original meaning mm-hmm. um, and suddenly... You know, there is no substantial meaning to be had. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's because also, uh, isn't isn't it the case that in that live gig, like instruments get smashed smashed up? Yeah. And he tries to grab for a piece of the guitar. Yeah, and he has it, and then he sort of like and lets just, it go. As yeah. He has it. He doesn't want it anymore. Yeah. It only had meaning in that venue in that context. Yeah. Once he, it's only when he exits, he just like chucks it on on the street. 
And that's interesting to me as well. Like this discarded piece of broken instrument. Yeah, he is a person that likes to sort of grab at things. Like he gets that propeller. Oh yeah. Like he's <laughs> insist on having this propeller and it's like really inconvenient for the girl who has to carry it out with him and he has to drive it home in his car and then he puts it in his studio and he never does anything with it. Yeah. He's a very kind of as a character he's so difficult to pin down. Yeah. But he's very unlikable. Yeah, no, and, he's. I think he's definitely supposed to be. And he's supposed to be. I always wonder if it's just one of those things where the it, the society has moved on, and maybe he wouldn't have appeared so bad in the sixties, or if he's supposed oh, yeah. to be a terrible person. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Whether it was deliberate, you know, mm. the deliberate construction of him being a jerk. I, I I just think that it somehow fits really well um, for the type of art that he creates. Mm. And the fact that he feels so resentful. He's carrying so much. Um, he's angry with himself that he's ended up here. Mm. And there's not a lot in the script to suggest his backstory. But um, it's only when he says some, you know, to his friend in the cafe something along the lines of, you know, what he really wants to do. You know, he's just work, he's, he's just doing this because he's, he's got this other these other ideas. Mm. And it just made me think that there's some element of sacrifice there for him. And what if he sacrificed too much? Mm. You know, his own sanity. That seems like a good place to stop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, next week we'll be back. We are going to be talking about desire. Yeah. Um, and two films that sort of embody the negatives and positives of that situation. So next week we're going to be looking at... Um, and we're going to be looking at Bruce Weber's Chop Suey, which is a strange yeah. kind of essay film, I'm going to call yeah. it, as opposed to a documentary. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Tom Ford's A Single Man. <laughs> Bye! Bye!